0: Good morning, everybody. It is uh, great to have you here at Grace, the Medina East Campus. Thanks for braving the weather and the snow to be here. And of course, if you're joining us online, thanks for joining us that way as well. And great to have you here this Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, I don't know what your plans are, but I thought we'd actually start off today, because it is Super Bowl Sunday, with a little bit of an icebreaker question. So at My Life Group, sometimes we ask icebreaker questions. I thought, yeah, we'll try that this weekend. And uh, so here it is. I, I think that I have found, in my experience, there are two kinds of people as it relates to the Super Bowl, all right? So there are uh, people who want to watch the Super Bowl game, and there are people who want to watch the Super Bowl commercials. And so let me just ask you, show of hands, how many of you are like, I wanna watch the game? That's what I'm into, all right, cool. How many of you are like, give me the commercials? That's what I'm here to see, okay, awesome. So, and of course, there's a whole other segment of people who are here who are like, I don't want either. I don't really care. And uh, that's fine uh, and those kind of things. But regardless of what your plans might be this evening for the Super Bowl, I am very, very thankful that you made this part of your plans being here today. So welcome to Grace. And if you, let me just say that if you're new to Grace or if you're new to the series that we're in, uh, we actually are in the midst of a series that we've been in for the past several weeks that is called The Way of Jesus. And you might be asking, what's all that about? And what we're doing is actually really straightforward. Uh, We are just working our way through the gospel of Luke. And so we said that Luke is actually a first century account of the life and the story and the ministry of Jesus. And so as a campus, we're just kind of working our way through that uh, here together. And so if you are just joining us, so glad that you're able to be uh, with us. And so I'm actually really excited because the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Luke actually is going to introduce to us a very, very important theme and a very, very important, just kind of uh, uh, focus that Luke emphasizes over and over again. And so I think that the, the theme and the emphasis that we're gonna look at today, the passage, really is gonna help us make sense of Luke, helps us, helps us understand the gospel of Luke. And I think it really helps us understand Jesus and what it means to follow him. And so what is that theme? What is the emphasis that we're gonna be introduced to here today? Well, before I tell you, let me just see if you can guess. Let me see if you can guess what it is. I'm gonna give you some hints Let's see if you can guess what it is. So here's a few hints and facts about the Gospel of Luke and this particular topic. So Luke includes 59% more language around this topic than Matthew, which by the way, Matthew is another first century account of the life of Jesus. And it contains three additional parables relating to this one topic. All right, so that's one hint. Here's another one. On at least four occasions... Luke includes Jesus doing this activity, whereas the other gospels do not, telling a more abbreviated version of the same story. So if you look at the different gospels, there's actually four of them, and you compare them to each other, they're gonna tell similar stories about the life of Jesus, but Luke is going to include something on four occasions that the other ones do not. All right, here's another one. Luke tells us five times that Jesus did this before breaking bread at meals. Let me give you a couple more. Luke includes six occasions of Jesus withdrawing from the crowds and the demands of ministry to do this. All right, Here's another one. Luke connects this activity to important decisions and pivotal moments within the course of Jesus' life and Jesus's ministry. And then here's the last one I'm going to give you. In Luke's Gospel, this was Jesus' final act before his death. So let me just see, maybe some of you. Can you guess what maybe this theme is? Can you guess? Can you guess? Can you guess? It is prayer. So if you said prayer, you are correct. And so this is actually a really important theme in the gospel of Luke. Luke is gonna talk about prayer more than any other gospel. This is why uh, commentators and Bible scholars will call Luke the the, uh, gospel of prayer. And I'll say that. And I actually think, you know, if you guys have been with us in this series, I think this is really important because in this series, we said one of the reasons that Luke wrote his gospel was that we might have certainty about the things of Jesus and that we might have clarity on what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that what Luke wants us to know is he wants us to know that Jesus was a person who deeply practiced prayer and that part of what it means to follow him is to be people who are deeply engaged in the practice of prayer. And so that's what we're gonna see is the focus of our passage. So if you've got your Bible, I wanna invite you to open it with me. We're gonna go to Luke chapter 11, okay? So the passage that we're gonna be looking at is actually Jesus's teaching on prayer found in Luke chapter 11. So if you did not bring a Bible with you here this morning, that's not a problem. You'll find a Bible under the chairs, hopefully in front of you, and you can turn to page 843 in those Bibles, And let me just tell you, if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take that home with you. You can make that a gift from us to you. Uh, We would just love for you to have your own copy of the Bible. But as you're finding Luke 11, um, I I actually want to invite us all together here this morning. As we're looking at Jesus' teaching on prayer, I want you to think about prayer for sure. But I also want to invite you, if you would, to think about how you pray. So I want you to think about your prayer life, or maybe for some of you, your lack thereof. I just want you to think about that with me. for How do you pray? How do you pray? What does your prayer life look like? What does prayer look like in your life? I want you to think about that with me here today. Because here's my guess. My guess is that maybe for a lot of us, myself included, our relationship with prayer is kind of a complicated one. My guess is that for a lot of us, prayer is kind of a, it's kind of a strange thing. Because if you think about it, on one hand, on one hand, prayer is one of the most basic instinctual things that we as humans intuitively do. On one hand, prayer is almost like, it's almost like an involuntary human reflex that for some reason, we as humans find ourselves praying. And even if you're a person that would say that you're not religious, even if you're a person that would say you're not a church person, even if you would say you're not sure if you believe in God, interestingly, we as people, especially in certain circumstances, we find ourselves compelled to pray, especially in times of crisis, in times where we're shocked or something happens. Our hearts are naturally drawn towards prayer. Actually, that was interesting. There's a bunch of articles that were written and a bunch of research that has been done that really ponders over why it is that humanity that all humans throughout all history and that all humans throughout all geography are so inclined to pray. That we all, regardless if you believe in God or not, or you're religious or, religious or not, there are certain moments and there are certain times of life that we are drawn to prayer like moth to a flame. I actually thought it was kind of interesting. There was one article I was reading, it actually uh, was released just last year from the National Library of Medicine. This is what they said. And said, using daily and weekly data on Google searches for 107 countries, research demonstrates that the COVID-19 crisis resulted in a massive rise in the intensity of prayer. During the early months of the pandemic, Google searches for prayer relative to all Google searches rose by 30%, reaching the highest level ever recorded. And what's interesting is the article goes on to kind of speculate about why is it that we as people, when we experience crises or, situ- crises or situations that are unexpected or we're, we find ourselves in a spot like that, that we just naturally are drawn to prayer. And some people might say, well, the reason, that doesn't prove that we believe in prayer. That doesn't pr- prove that we believe in God. Some people would say the reason that we're drawn to prayer in the midst of a crisis is because we're desperate. That's why. But I actually would uh, push against that. I actually think that there's more behind it. I actually believe that in moments of crisis, in moments of shock, that what comes out of us is usually the stuff that's actually truly inside of us. I love what C.S. Lewis said one time. C.S. Lewis, some of you guys might be familiar, is an author, wrote a great book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he has this excellent statement that he says, he says, basically, he says this. He says, if you wanna know what's truly inside of your basement, if you wanna know what really lurks in your basement, he said this, he said, you have to surprise your basement, which might sound super weird to you, but I, I think he goes on and explains it. And in his book, he actually says cellar. I don't think a lot of us have cellars, but so I'm going with basement. But basically here was his idea. He said, if, he said, he said basically this, he said, if you want to know what's lurking in your cellar, if you want to know what rodents are there, what mice and what rats and what creepy crawly things, what spiders lurk there, he said, you can't, you, you can't just like announce that you're coming downstairs. You can't just flip on the lights and say, I'm coming down now, like you can't do that. He said, what you have to do is you have to surprise your basement. You have to shock your cellar. You have to slip downstairs and then turn on the lights and then it will expose everything that is already there. And so C.S. Lewis says this. He says, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he really is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. I think that's really telling, Why is it that in moments of shock, why is it that moments in crisis that we are so drawn to prayer? Here's what I think it is. I think it's because each and every single one of us, it has a a natural instinct that we are drawn towards God. The Bible is going to say it this way, that God has put eternity inside of our hearts, that all of us have a natural compass that we, in, in a lot of ways, we want to pray. It's one of the most basic human instincts that all of us have. And so on one hand, we desire to pray. It's an instinct that we have. But on the other hand, I think all of us can relate with this, prayer can be a deeply mystifying, deeply confusing, and because of that, I think a very frustrating activity. My guess is for some of you, when I said, hey, I wanna invite you to think about your prayer life here today, you probably felt the same way that I do when my dentists asked me about flossing. That's probably how you felt. How's like the house of flossing been? Oh, I try to do it when I can, and oh, I can explain myself. And, and for some of you, you feel that there's so there's guilt, and there's oh, I know I should do it more, and I know God wants me to. And and so on one hand, we want to pray, we desire to pray, we are we are created to pray. On the other hand, some of us are frustrated and maybe even a little bit guilty because of our prayer. And let me just say that if you if you can relate to that tension, and I know I can. If you can relate to that tension. I believe that you and I believe that me, I think we'd be in really great company with the disciples. I think we're gonna fit right in because I think we're gonna see that same tension in them. So let's take a look. Luke chapter 11, and I want you to notice how uh, what, what this is gonna tell us. Jesus is gonna teach us about prayer, but I want you to notice how it starts. So verse one, the Bible says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. He was praying in a certain place. Now, again, I, w- I want to just remind you, Uh, what we just said, Luke is going to show us this over and over again. Jesus was always praying. I don't think there is a chapter in the gospel of Luke that you're not gonna see Jesus praying. And so again, in another occasion, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And I think this is so cool. You know, as I was reading the gospel of Luke, I noticed, did you ever notice that in the gospel, if you guys have been reading with us, the disciples are always catching Jesus in prayer. They're always catching him. Like Jesus is always sneaking off and then they catch him praying. It actually got me thinking about that. What is something that you do so frequently that the people who are closest to you commonly catch you doing it? I thought, man, you know what? That just speaks to the priority and it speaks to, the, to, the, to the, just the, the amount that Jesus prayed. And so this is one of those occasions. The disciples catch Jesus praying. And the Bible says when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, now check this out, Lord, can you teach us how to pray? Just like John taught his disciples. Now, here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus' disciples, you know, this is chapter 11, I think they they keep seeing Jesus do this. Jesus keeps going off to pray. Sometimes he prays all night. Sometimes he prays for extended periods of time. And my guess is that on this occasion, he comes down and the disciples probably recognize that there is a discrepancy between the way that Jesus prays and the way that they pray. They probably recognize there's a difference. Like, Jesus, when you pray, when you pray, it actually looks like you kind of enjoy it. Jesus, when you pray, you actually spend time doing it. When you pray, it seems like there's a depth to it that we, when we look at our prayer life, it just looks totally different. And so they say, Jesus, can you teach us? Can you show us how to do what you're doing? Can you teach us to pray? And I love Jesus' answer because Jesus basically says, sure, yeah. And so look, look what it says, verse two. So he said to them, when you pray, say, and then Jesus gives them this, Father hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And that's what Jesus gives them. He gives them this prayer. Now, uh, my guess is that probably most of us, if not all of us in this room are somewhat familiar with this prayer. It's actually a very famous prayer. It's sometimes called the Our Father. Uh, Sometimes it's also called the Lord's Prayer. Some of you grew up in religious traditions where you probably have this memorized. You might have this, this prayer memorized. But if you have it memorized, you might be reading this, and you might be going, oh, yeah, I know that prayer. But uh, Jesus, um, you're actually saying it wrong. That's not how it goes. It actually goes like this. Uh, let, let me teach you the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, right? It's actually our Father, not Father. And then it's uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. So Jesus, you missed that part, and uh, and we, we kind of think that. So why is this different than when we have memorized? Well, interestingly... Uh, The reason it's different is because there's actually two occasions where Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. One is in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, and that's actually the version that most of us probably have committed to memory. And then you have this one here in Luke. But what's interesting is, this is the same prayer, it's obviously the same prayer, but it's taught on two different occasions. So Matthew 6 is a sermon that Jesus gave, called the Sermon on the Mount. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Now why is that important? I think it's important for a couple reasons. First off, it tells us that this was a prayer that Jesus often taught, he often taught. But the other reason it's important is the language is not the same. And so it's the same prayer, but it's not the same language. And I think what that tells us is that this prayer was never intended to simply be a script that we mindlessly memorize and just recite like a mantra. It was never intended to be that. I think that what this is telling us is that it was always intended to be a pattern of prayer, It was intended to be a template. Jesus says, pray like this, pray in this, in this way. Now, of course, we could spend all day talking about the Lord's Prayer and talking about how awesome it is, but I just wanna tell you that we actually have already spent an entire sermon series on that topic. And I just wanna point you back at this point, we actually did a whole sermon called Teach Us to Pray. This was several years ago. We went line by line and phrase by phrase through the Lord's Prayer. So if you wanna check that out, I would highly encourage you to do it. I think it was a great series because uh, we looked at this incredible prayer together. However, today, what I wanna do, since we're in Luke 11, is I actually wanna look at the next part because what Luke does next is actually something that is very unique and no other gospel does this. Jesus, in his teaching on prayer, is now gonna go on to give us a prayer parable. Now, I just wanna tell you, this is part of what makes Luke unique. Luke gives us prayer Parables. These are parables that Jesus gives, little stories that Jesus gives that are intended to deepen our understanding of how to pray and on what prayer is. Okay? So these are prayer parables. Only Luke contains some of these prayer parables. Prayer parables. Or I like to call them prayerables. That's what I like to call them. Okay? So turn to your neighbor. Go ahead. I know you want to do it. Say prayerable. Yeah, I'm prayerable. And you got prayer. It's kind of like a lunchable. All right. So, prayerable. So, so we're gonna see one here. So here's what Jesus does. Check this out. Verse five, he just taught us. He's teaching us how to pray, teaching his disciples how to pray. Pray this way. He gives us the Our Father, gives us the Lord's Prayer. And then continuing in his teaching on prayer, look what he says. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. All right, so Jesus gives us this parable and he sets it up by giving us this hypothetical scenario. And here's what he says. Imagine you got a friend. And he says, imagine that one day you have a friend that comes to you at midnight on a journey and you have no food to offer him. So he gives us this scenario. Now, I know for us, that seems like kind of a foreign scenario that probably wouldn't happen to most of us. But this actually would have been something that uh, in the first century, it would have been kind of relatable. So as you can imagine, in the first century, uh, travel was much more difficult. It was much more challenging. Uh, you had to walk everywhere and, uh, or you had to use animals to get places. And so if you were to travel a long distance with your family, you can imagine how frustrating of a process that would be. There was no minivan. There was no TV screens. There was no tablets. And so you actually had to walk or carry animals, sometimes dozens of miles. And so, so you really couldn't estimate when you were going to arrive. You just got there when you got there, you couldn't stop at a hotel. There was no hotel chains. So you had to rely on the hospitality and the relationship networks of the people that you knew. And so the Bible tells us that this person, notice that this friend, arrived at midnight. He arrived at midnight. Now again, I think this is kind of important because back in the first century, before there was electricity, midnight truly was the middle of your night. Unlike for us where midnight is a lot of your bedtime, this would have been like the actual middle of their night. And the Bible says, this guy's got a problem because his friend showed up and he's got no food to offer him. He's got no food. Some of us are thinking, why is that a big deal? Well, in the first century, especially among the Jewish community, that was a huge deal. Uh, Hospitality in the first century among the Jewish people was a very big deal. Not only was it a a social obligation, it also would have been a legal expectation. There actually were hospitality laws around it. So, M.T. Wright, who actually wrote a great commentary on Luke, he said this, he said, the laws of hospitality in the ancient Middle East were strict, and if a traveler arrived needing food and shelter, one was under an obligation to provide it. So this guy, not only was there a cultural expectation on, there's a legal obligation for him to fulfill, so he was in trouble. So he needed to get some food. So what's he gonna do? What's he gonna do? He can't run to Walmart. There's not a 24-hour Walmart. So what does he do? He goes to his neighbor, his friend and his neighbor, and look what the Bible says. The Bible says he starts pounding on his door and he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. I love the way he starts his request, by the way. Isn't that how all favors start? Friend, right? Hey buddy, <laughs> remember you like me. That's how it kind of starts. So he's like, you gotta lend me some stuff. And then look at this, Jesus goes on. He says, and suppose the guy inside says, don't bother me, go away. I'm tired. We're sleeping. And I, I love I love his, I don't know why. Maybe it's just me. This found me, I, this struck me as funny. Look at his reasoning. Don't bother me. The door's locked. Man, I can't go getting out of bed and locking doors. You know how much work that took? Sounds like tired man logic to me. So he says, the door's locked. But then look at the next thing he says. He said, but my kids and I are in bed. Now, this this would have been, it would have actually been something that was very disruptive, So I know if I was to tell you my kids are in bed uh, today, what you would think is you'd think each kid in their own bed and probably in their own room. That's the way it works for a lot of us. Uh, But in the first century, that was not how it was at all. In fact, I'll show you, I thought this was kind of cool. This is an artist's rendition of a first century house among the Jewish people. This is what it would look like. I don't know if if you can see this, but when you entered into the house, there'd be a courtyard. So this would be all a dirt floor. And then you would keep your animals here, right next to the animals in a very sanitary way would be your kitchen. And then you'd have some storage over here. And then upstairs is where the living area would be. So in nighttime, when it was time for bed, you would take a big mat and you would unroll it on the upper floor and the whole family would pile together and sleep on the same mat. So next time you find anyone in your family complaining about the square footage of your house, just pull out this picture and show it to them. And, remind them. and so the whole point is this, it would have been very disruptive. And so if this guy had to get out of bed, his kids were getting out of bed, if his kids were getting out of bed, the animals were up, everyone's up, this would have been very disruptive. And so he says, don't bother me. Now, look what Jesus says next. Jesus said, this is so fascinating. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, this is interesting. Jesus says, I tell you, friendship is not enough to get this guy out of bed. His loyalty to him as a friend and as a neighbor is not enough to motivate this guy to help. He says, however, because of your, now this is the key, shameless audacity, (laughs) he will surely get up and give you as much as he needs. This is so fascinating. Jesus says, friendship is not enough to motivate this guy to get out of bed, but you know what it is? Your shameless audacity. Now some of you are like, what? is that. Interesting, you might have a different translation. Some of you have the uh, ESV. You guys might have those study journals. The ESV says this word. It says impudence, because of his impudence, which so you're like, I don't know what that means either, which I didn't either. I actually had to learn how to pronounce that word so I could say it in front of you guys. So what's it mean? Well, I actually went and looked at uh, at at a Bible dictionary, and according to something called the BDAG, which is a famous Bible dictionary, it actually comes from a Greek word, which is actually the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. This is it. This is the only time. And the word literally means a lack of sensitivity to what's proper, carelessness about the good opinion of others, shamelessness, impertinence. It is the ignoring of convention. And so what does this word mean? Well, if we were to put it in our own words, I think we'd say this. We'd say this guy was bold. We'd say this guy was audacious. We would say this guy had some gull. This guy had some nerves. This guy had some chutzpah. That's what we'd say. we say, this guy had some other things I can't probably say from the stage, but you get what I'm talking about. That's what this guy had. And the opposite, just to make it even more clear, would be words like cautious or timid or mumbling or shy or not wanting to impose. And so Jesus says, this guy, it's because of his audacity. It's because of his annoying relentlessness that this neighbor finally gives in. And then, after telling this story, Jesus goes on to give his conclusion about prayer. And look what he says. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Boy, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this passage and I studied it, Jesus' conclusion was very perplexing to me. I was like, What? I mean, I can only imagine the disciples are like, what? After hearing that story, I could imagine that if Jesus was to draw a conclusion about prayer after telling that story, I could imagine he might say something like this. So I say to you, when you pray, be more considerate and diplomatic. I mean, for crying out loud, this is the God of the universe we're talking about. Don't go bang around in his presence demanding things. Like, I could imagine that in light of what Jesus said. All right, how about this? I could imagine Jesus saying this. So I say to you, don't pester God with the small stuff. All right, if you have something big and important, then okay, but otherwise, look, just deal with it yourself. I could imagine Jesus saying that. Now, how does Jesus Jesus conclude? He says, ask, seek, knock. To the one who asks, he's gonna be answered. To the one who knocks, the door is gonna be open. Now, what in the world is Jesus teaching us about prayer? What is he telling us about God and what is he telling us about prayer? Is Jesus saying, is he saying that God is like this neighbor who is annoyed when we ask him, but if we just keep going and we keep pestering him, that eventually we will wear him down and he'll give us what we want? Is that what Jesus is saying? It seems like that. Okay, I just tell you that I actually think that the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here comes in understanding um, a type of logic that first century rabbis would have used that quite honestly is a type of logic we don't really use that often today. And so I want you to stick with me here for just a second because I think that this is critical to understanding what Jesus is saying. And it's actually something called a fortiori logic, a fortiori logic, which every time I say it, I can't help but feel like the Swedish chef, a fortiori. So it's kind of fun to say, Turn to someone next to you, just do it. I know you want to say it. And say a fortiori. And if you say it like the Swedish chef, go ahead. You want to try it. So, a fortiori. Now, what is this? Like I said, this is a type of logic that rabbis would have used in the first century that's not really common today. And basically, a fortiori logic comes from a Latin term that means by a greater reason. And what it does is, a fortiori logic makes a point through a difference. So, it makes a point by showing the difference of two things. The opposite of A40 or a forty logic is what we are familiar with. And that is something called analogous logic. It's 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 basically logic through analogy. And the way that you know you're using analogous logic is it makes a point through similarity. All right? Now one of the key ways that you know you're dealing with A fortiori logic or analogous logic is by a statement that is often used. And so, with a fortiori logic, oftentimes the statement that will reveal this type of logic is this statement right here How much more? If this is like this, how much more is this gonna be like this? All right. Now, analogous logic basically would use this statement in the same way. Now, I know for some of you, you're like, okay, I'm lost, I'm confused, I don't know what you're talking about. So let me see if I can give you an example just to make it super clear. So Jesus actually uses both of these forms of logic on different occasions. And so sometimes Jesus uses analogies. And a lot of us, if you've read the Bible, you're familiar with this. So I'll just give you one. In Matthew 13, some of you might, if you've read before, you might remember, Jesus said this on one occasion. He gave an analogy and he said this. He said, the kingdom of God... It's like a mustard seed. It's like, a, he's giving an analogy. The kingdom of God, my kingdom, is like a mustard seed. And then he goes on, and Jesus says, a mustard seed starts small, and then it gets big. Mustard seed is the smallest seed that you can imagine, but it grows into the biggest plant in the garden. And then Jesus says, in the same way, see, it's an analogy, the kingdom of God is going to start small, and it's going to get big. And so it's a one for one. It's an analogy. So, when we read the parable that we just read, a lot of times we think Jesus is giving us an analogy. And so, because of that, we read it like this We read, okay, here's a friend and a neighbor, and they are annoyed and tired. And because he keeps asking, he eventually gives, he gives reluctantly. And so, we think, well, I guess in the same way, this is an analogy, God is like that friend and neighbor who is annoyed when we ask him, but if we keep asking, he's eventually going to give to us. And That's how we think it goes. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think what Jesus is doing is he's using a fortiori logic. And if we read it, it would actually read something more like this. If a friend or a neighbor who is tired and is irritable eventually gives reluctantly because you keep asking, how much more is your a loving God who doesn't get tired, a loving God who's never annoyed, a loving God who wants to hear from you, how much more is he gonna give generously? See, I think that is the thrust. That is the, the, the kind of the, the, the way, the weight that you would have felt when you would have heard this. Now, let me just show you. I think the next thing that Jesus says makes this even more clear. So look what Jesus says next. This is, this is awesome. So Jesus changes metaphors. And then in verse 11, Jesus goes on. He says, now, which of you fathers? Remember, he's still teaching on prayer. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, is going to give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, is going to give him a scorpion? Now, I, I got to tell you, I think it's, it's too easy for us to miss the humor in Jesus' teaching. For Jesus' disciples, when they would have thought of this scenario, they definitely would have laughed at, how, at just, I mean, how outrageous it was. So Jesus is like, okay, so he's like, let's just say, which of you fathers? So I, I want you guys to imagine this. Which of you who are fathers or who are mothers in this room, if you're parents, which of you, if your kid came to you, just imagine this, if your kid came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, you know what I could really go for? I could really go for a nice fish dinner, you know, just some, maybe we could stop at Arthur Treacher's. I, I, I literally know no child who has ever said that. But like, it's like, you know, I could really, could we get some fish and chips, maybe some, coleslaw, tartar sauce, right? Which of you parents is going to say to your kid, oh, you're hungry, are you? <laughs> now I've been cooking up something special for you. You ready for it? It's a poisonous viper. Like Who's doing that? And then Jesus is like, or imagine this. Which of you parents, if your son or your daughter comes up to you and says, mother or father might I have an egg? Which again, who's doing that, right? Brown or white, either will do. Scrambled, poached, whatever, I don't know. Which of you parents is gonna be like, oh, you want an egg, do you? Well, close your eyes and hold out your hand. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a scorpion! Like, who's doing that? How maniacal is that? And And listen, here, Jesus... Jesus is is awesome. And then he makes this point. Look what he says. If you then, though you're evil, I love Jesus just drops that. (laughs) You guys are evil. (laughs) He's like, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, here it is, you ready? How much more? It's a fortiori. Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Wow, there it is. You see what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says this. If you our sinful parents, our imperfect parents, our flawed, which by the way, that's true of all of us. We're all sinful, imperfect, flawed people. Some of us happen to be parents, which means that we're sinful, imperfect, flawed parents. All of us are gonna mess up our kids in some way. We're not trying to, we can't help it, we just will. But Jesus says, even though you are sinful and imperfect, you still know how to give good things to your kids. You still know how to do that. Well, how much more do you think that your perfect heavenly father who never gets annoyed, who never gets frustrated, who never loses his cool, how much more do you think that he's gonna give the Holy Spirit to those who love him? And if I could rephrase it in my own words, I think here's the original force of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus is saying, listen, if earthly friends who are tired and irritable grant requests, and if earthly fathers who are imperfect know how to give good gifts. This is what I think Jesus is teaching. I think this is the point. How much more will our perfect heavenly father grant requests and give good gifts? And you guys, I think that this right here, I think that this right here is the paradigm altering reality that Jesus wants us and wants his disciples to get a hold of. I think it's this right here. Let's say, can I just tell you after studying this passage over the past couple of weeks, here's what I'm convinced of. I think that what Jesus is doing is he is trying to confront the deeper issue behind, quite honestly, why so many of us are frustrated in prayer. I think what Jesus is trying to show us is that it's possible, in fact, I think it's probable, that maybe the reason that so many of us struggle in prayer is actually rooted in our perception of God. It's rooted in how we view him. What is Jesus trying to teach us? He is trying to teach us that God is our heavenly father, is our perfect heavenly father, is our perfect heavenly father. And I believe that, what, I think this is what Jesus is trying to get at. This is gonna help you make so much sense of prayer when you understand the person behind it. Here, here's what I think is happening. I think the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, when you pray, man, it's like you have like this depth when you pray. When you pray, there's this dependency. When you pray, it just, it just seems like you're on a different level than we are. Can you show us how to do that? And I think Jesus says, yes, I'd love to show you how to pray. But I think what Jesus says is this. I think Jesus says, listen, but as I teach you to pray, what you need is not just a better pattern. And what you need is not just a better process. And what you need is not just more discipline. I think those things are good, by the way. But I think Jesus is pointing to a more foundational thing. He says, listen, what you need is not a better plan. What you need is not a better pattern. What you need is not a better practice. What you need first is you need to know the person who you're praying, and he is your father. He is your father. Do you ever wonder why is it that Jesus teaches us to pray, our father? He gives gives a, a parable about a neighbor and a friend, and then he gives another parable about a father and a son. Why does he do that? Can I tell you why I think he does that? Because remember how Jesus told us to pray? Remember the starting place? Jesus taught us to pray, not our friend in heaven. He didn't teach us to pray our neighbor in heaven, He didn't teach us to pray our boss in heaven or our judge in heaven. He taught us to pray our father in heaven. This is the beginning point of understanding what prayer is. I love what Mike McKinley said. He's a commentator. He said this. He said, if you do not pray much, perhaps you do not take seriously the fact that God is your heavenly father. Or perhaps you think that God is not willing to hear your prayers. Maybe deep down, you believe that it doesn't matter whether you ask God or not. But let Jesus's words here encourage you to pray right now your father is ready to hear and to bless you. I think that's so big. You know, I think when we begin to understand that God is our heavenly father, a per- now I understand for some of us, we had really bad earthly fathers and it makes this whole idea hard to understand. But let me just say that if you had a, an earthly father where your relationship is, is, is in a rough spot with them, my guess is that maybe, maybe you know more than others do what, what a true father should be, because it's something that you crave and you long for. I think the Bible's gonna tell us that we have to start by understanding God as our father. And I think when we start to understand this, it brings a whole lot of clarity to what prayer is and what prayer is not. I think it brings a whole lot of clarity. I remember I actually heard um, uh, a, a pastor say this years ago and it stuck with me. This is so practical and I thought it was so helpful. I heard a pastor say this. He said, because God is our father, That means that God always answers our prayer, always. There is no such thing as unanswered prayer. There's no such thing. But because God is our Father, He's not always going to answer the same way every time. And so this is what the pastor said, and I still remember this. I thought it was really memorable and really helpful. He said this, when we pray, our Father sometimes, because He's our Father, sometimes He's gonna say no. Sometimes He's gonna say slow. Sometimes He's gonna say grow and sometimes he's gonna say go. So it's pithy, and it rhymes, and it's memorable. I think it's helpful, right? Sometimes God says no, slow, grow, go. And for those of us in Northeast Ohio, a lot of times snow is his answer to us. uh, But I think this is super helpful because God is our Father. And so sometimes he's gonna say no. And what's behind that? I think sometimes God says no as our Father because sometimes our request is wrong. Sometimes the thing that we're asking for is something that's actually gonna be hurtful or harmful to us. And God says no, not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he does love us. Listen, I think we need to keep in mind that the answer no is different than no answer. God is answering. Sometimes he says no, sometimes he says no. Sometimes there's things that are harmful or hurtful for us and God as a loving father is gonna say no to those things. He's gonna say no. You know, in this parable, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, which one of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, is gonna give him a snake? And we all laugh at that, because we're like, that's absurd. Yeah, but which father, if a son asks for a poisonous snake, is gonna be like, well, okay, since you keep asking, <laughs> who's gonna do that? And so sometimes, sometimes the is no. Sometimes the answer's slow. And what's behind that is that, listen, sometimes our, the timing's just off. Timing's wrong. Sometimes God doesn't say no, God just says, not yet. God just says, not now. God just says, yeah, just, just, just wait, just wait. And sometimes there is a process that, needs, that we need to go through. And I think the question here is, do we trust that if we have a heavenly father, that that means that he has a perspective that we don't see and that we don't understand? And is it possible that he's working out things in his time, that he has a timetable and he has a reason for, for, the, for a purpose behind the reason of why he does things? And can we thank him for it? Can we thank him for it? And I think that's an important thing. So sometimes, no, sometimes slow. Sometimes God says grow. And here the idea is you're wrong, you're wrong. And what I mean by that is sometimes we ask for things and our heart is wrong or our character is wrong or sometimes our attitude is wrong or our motives are wrong. And God says, I actually want you to grow. And, the re- and, and sometimes I believe that God's desire is not to change our circumstances. Sometimes God's desire is to change us. And that's what he's actually going for. I love what one author says in his book, Too Busy to Pray. I love what he says. He says, one of the most famous requests is this. Oh God, please change the other person. Wives make this about their husbands, husbands about their wives, parents about their children, employees about bosses. In fact, any time two or more Christian people have had to relate closely to each other, someone is likely to make this request. He goes on, but what are we actually praying I don't want to face my own shortcomings. I don't want to work on this relationship. I don't want to change at all. Instead, I want the other person to accommodate to all my personal needs, so I'm asking that you change him or her. If you pray that kind of prayer, God may say no. Sometimes God delays so that we can develop character qualities such as endurance, trust, patience, and submission, qualities that come only when we wait patiently and we trust in his time. I hey, it's good. that's really good. Sometimes God doesn't wanna take the circumstance from us. He, does, he has us in that place or in that relationship because there's things that he wants to accomplish in our character and in our heart. So sometimes God says, no, slow, grow. Sometimes he says, go. Sometimes all systems are go. Sometimes the request is right, the timing is right, and you're right, and your father in heaven loves you. And he loves to give good gifts to his kids. Sometimes he, the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is, go, you go, yes. That's what God wants for us, and he, I think that when we begin to understand God as our father, this actually makes a lot of sense. So how do we learn to pray like Jesus? I think it all begins here. We pray to God as our father in heaven. Ask the band to make their way up. And as they do, I actually just wanna end our time with uh, just a couple of uh, kind of practical encouragements in light of what we just read, in light of what Jesus just taught us about prayer so here's my first one. My first encouragement to you is to pray to your heavenly father, is to pray to him. Pray to your heavenly father. You know, I think that what this parable and what Jesus is instructing us is he's saying that he wants us to have a vision of the person that we're praying to, praying to our heavenly father. For some of us, I think that that might open up a lot of clarity in how we, in how we interact with God and how we address him. But I gotta be honest with you, If you're someone who's investigating Jesus here today, maybe you're a person who would say you're not quite sure what you believe about Jesus. Maybe you've never put your faith in him and and those type of things. And if that's you, man, we always say this, I'm just so thankful that you would let us be part of your spiritual investigation. But I do wanna be honest with you. The Bible's gonna tell us that not everybody can call God Father. The Bible tells us that it's only when a person embraces Jesus Christ by faith and devotes their life to following him as their Lord that we are adopted as his children. This is what John says. John says to all who uh, receive him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the Bible's gonna say it's only when we place our faith in him, it's only when we, we, we surrender the lordship of our life to him that we say, Jesus, I want you to define and direct my life, that we are adopted into his family. And I wanna tell you that if you're a person who's never embraced Christ, I wanna tell you that not to exclude you. I actually wanna tell you that to invite you. This is on offer to you. The forgiveness of God and the grace of God through Jesus Christ is available to you even today. And you can talk to God. You can, you might, I've never done that before. In a very, you could do it right now. Just express your heart to his heart. I would encourage you to do that. So I think first and foremost, I wanna encourage us to pray to our heavenly father. Here's a second encouragement I wanna give to you. In light of what we just read, pray what you've got. Pray what you've got. You know, I think if there's one thing that this parable teaches us, is it's that God, as our Father, invites, he invites us to come boldly with shameless audacity to his throne. And sometimes I think we're so concerned about, oh, I don't want to bother God, or I want to make sure I say things right, and what if I say the wrong thing? And and listen, I think this parable, Jesus is trying to tell us something. He's saying, listen, you want to know how prayer works? He said, here's a model for you. Look at how a young child interacts with their loving father or their loving parent. There you go. And I don't know about you. That's helpful for me. I have a three-year-old son. Uh, his name is Louis, Louis Labigny. And uh, I just tell you that kid, I love it. He he doesn't care how many you know degrees I have. He doesn't care I have pastor in front of my name. He doesn't care if I'm on a Zoom call with all of the elders of Grace Church. That kid will run right in with his pants off. Shameless audacity to come in and ask me for some milk or whatever it is there that his brother hit him or whatever. And I'll be honest with you, I am a sinful, imperfect parent. And I love it. I love it. Now, I don't always love it because I'm sinful and imperfect, but I will say I enjoy, I I love him and I love to hear from him. And I'm just saying, that is your model of prayer. That is, so go running. Keep your pants on, but go running to God. (laughs) Here's the last one. Pray with your brothers and sisters. Pray with your brothers and sisters. I think because God is our father, what that means is that when we pray, we can pray as brothers and sisters together. I think we need to remember Jesus is teaching on prayer. When he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray our father, which means that we're brothers and sisters. You know, can I just tell you, this is so practical. Can I just tell you, I think that for some of us, your next step of spiritual growth And I could just tell you, this was true in my life. I grew so much when I began doing this. I think one of your next steps of growth might be to start praying out loud with other followers of Jesus. I know for some of you, you're like, oh, I could never do that. But I just believe if we are brothers and sisters, we can actually, we have a lot to learn from each other as we cry out to our Father together. So I might encourage you to do that. Maybe get in a life group. Maybe start praying with the people there. Maybe for you, if you're going through the Luke Journal with somebody, maybe pray with them. I think it's an awesome thing. And of course, we can pray right now. And so why don't we, as brothers and sisters, let's go to our Father, let's talk to God together. Well, thank you, Jesus, that we can come to you. And we can pray what we got, you know? We can come to you and we can say what's on our hearts. We can say what's on our minds. We can express to you how we feel we can let you in on what we think. There's nothing that's too small that you don't care about. It's because you're our father and you love us and you want to hear from us and you have things you want to say to us. Would you help us to be a people that believe that? Lord, forgive us for the times that that we think we have to just, you know, we have to just say everything the right way. God, forgive us for the times that we are afraid that we're gonna bother you with the little things. Father, that it's not the kind of prayer you invited us into. You invited us to come to you with boldness and it's only because of Jesus that we can. And so thank you that you purchased us the freedom to be able to be called your sons and daughters. And I pray that even right now, as we worship and we sing, that these, the songs that we sing wouldn't just be lyrics, but they would be prayers that we pray to you. Help us to cry out with authenticity in our hearts to you as our Father.